0: Hello and welcome to Rock Paper Swords, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfie. And my name is Stephen A. McKay. We're both best-selling historical fiction authors and together we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV and games. Oh, and we also talk
1: about rock music from time to time. <laughs>
0: Our guest today is, um, I presume, it's Dr. Nicholas Morton.
2: Yes, that's right, yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah. Nicholas Morton. Morton. Um, Nicholas is an associate professor at Nottingham Trent University. He's the author or editor of nine books, including The Field of Blood, and several other books about the Crusades and medieval Europe and the Near East. His latest book is The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. The book tells the story of how the Mongol Empire upended the geopolitics of the Near East, reshaping the balance of power and transforming the region forever. So, welcome to Rock Paper Swords, Nick.
2: Thank you so much. Back with the show.
0: And is it okay to call you Nick before we? (laughs) Of course, absolutely fine. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, thank you.
2: Hi, Nick. Good to have you here.
0: The first question I've got really, actually, I've got a question even before my first question. is I, I realised as I was reading the introduction that, that I, I use the term which comes from your um, book blurb and stuff, Near East, quite a lot. And I just wondered if you could just tell us first, what is the Near East as opposed to Middle East or Far East? And, you know, how does that all fit in with with that, with the geography, basically, first, very quickly?
2: Sure. So, yeah, I mean, Middle East, in some ways, it's a better word, but it's got a bit more of a sort of modern ring to it, I've always felt. Um very broadly, for the purposes of this book, I'm talking about Persia, so modern-day Iran in the east, through to the eastern Mediterranean coastline, but taking in Egypt and what's maybe modern-day Turkey or Byzantium or the uh, Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate, as it would have been in the 13th century. So it's, it's that kind of area. Right. Okay.
0: So you've written a lot about the Crusades, What made you turn your attention to the Mongols?
2: Sure. So it started really from a place that didn't have much to do with the Mongols at all. Um, What I wanted to do is I wanted to write a history of Middle East, Near East, um, at a time of enormous change, and I wanted to do it so the narrative was coming from multiple perspectives because – when you look at histories of the region um, that have been written already, they're written from the Byzantine perspective or from a Muslim perspective, like the Mamluk Empire or the Ayyubid Empire or from the Crusader perspective. It tends to align itself along one particular group's experience. And I didn't want to do that. What I wanted to do was to show how all the collision, of different alliances and cross-cultural perceptions and ideas and religions and armies and cuisines, in some case, the meeting point of them all. Because for me, that's what makes the area, that's what makes the period so interesting. It's this enormous sharing of things, all sorts of different things. And it's rarely nice, sometimes it's very much not nice, But it happens and it's interesting and things get transferred and people meet cultures and civilizations that had never encountered before and what they make of each other. And it's all that kind of thing happening in the same space. So the Mongol invasions, to me, seemed like a really good opportunity, both from the Mongols perspective, but also from everyone else's perspective, to see this enormous collision of different cultures brought about and how it changed um, the region, the world in the longer term. So, what
1: are some of the pivotal moments in the history of the Mongol Empire? Everyone's heard of Genghis Khan. I uh, Iron Maiden even wrote a song about him. But there's clearly a lot more to it than just one man.
2: Yeah. So, the book's mostly concerned with his various successes. And so, I mean, you mentioned turning points or, or key moments. Um, there's several I'd pick. From a military perspective, the Mongols' big victories are their invasion of 1230 and their victory over the Anatolian Seljuks in 1243. Um, these are major victories that enable them to conquer much of the region. And then in the 1250s, the Mongols conduct their um, incredibly brutal siege of Baghdad, which is also a key moment in 1258. Then their invasions tail off. Into the 1260s, particularly when they suffer a major defeat at the hands of the Egyptians called the Mamluk Empire in 1260. And from then on, it's uh, the borders begin to stabilise a little bit. So militarily, those would be the turning points or the key moments. But there's lots of other things going on as well. For example, um, the advent of gunpowder into the Mediterranean region that happens in this era. Now, that's not a military turning point. In fact, it's not actually used by the combatant armies, or it doesn't seem to have been. But nonetheless, once it's arrived, it's going to change everything uh, as it begins to be picked up by the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Mamluk Empire, and of course, Western Christendom as well. And it will then fundamentally shape the history of future centuries. Now, we don't know when it happened. But it seems as if gunpowder recipes are beginning to filter into the Mediterranean region from about the mid 13th century, and it seems very likely the Mongols either brought them with them, recipes for doing it, or merchants linked to the Mongol Empire did so. So that would be a key moment. Another one would be, again, not a military date at all, would be a little bit towards the after the end of my book, a couple of decades later, when the Black Death hits the um, hits the region. And the Black Death is an enormous phenomenon. It encompasses um, vast areas of Eurasia. Research is beginning to show that it also impacted Africa as well, with a death toll in some areas of up to forty percent of total population within a few years. Now, that too is an enormous event, and it happens in a, It doesn't happen in one year. It happens from about the 1340s onwards. Although an argument is being made for an earlier date, possibly in some areas too. But that is, again, something, it's a very hot topic in academic circles at the moment, About the Mongols' role in trans- transferring the Black Death from one region to another. No one claims did it on purpose, but it happened. And the suggestion is that maybe animals brought along with the Mongol armies or with Mongol merchants may have brought it with them. But the, the, the debate rages on that one.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you, you talked about um, this period in the 13th century, as we're saying, isn't it? It's the 13th yeah. century with with um, this, this rise of the Mongol Empire and these massive invasions. How far did the Mongol Empire stretch and how long did the empire last and what led to its decline in sort of um, broad strokes?
2: Okay. So, in broad strokes, um, under Chinggis Khan or Genghis Khan, as he's more commonly known, uh, in, certainly in Western Europe, he began by consolidating the tribes and communities of Mongolia in the late 12th, early 13th century. And then he began a series of wars against other societies around the periphery of the Mongol steppe region. And that included northern China, which he began to invade and conquer in a series of invasions into the 1210s. In 1218-19, he began to conquer the Khwarazmian Empire, which is an empire that embraces much of modern-day Iran, but also the southern part of the Stans, if you see what I mean, so to the east of the Caspian Sea. After that, the Mongols starburst across Eurasia. 1230s, 1240s, the Mongols advanced through much of what's there be Russia and Eastern Europe, um, conquering... Hungary and Poland in 1241, although they left fairly soon after they conquered Hungary and Poland, but they stayed in much of the rest of Eastern Europe and Russia, the Near East, Uh, first incursions in 1221, main invasion 1230, follow-up invasions in in the 1240s and a big one in the 1250s, ongoing invasions into China, which culminated with the complete overthrow of China in the 1260s towards the end. Two failed invasions of Japan by sea. Um, famously, the bigger bigger of the two was thwarted by a divine wind known as kamikaze, which is uh, where the where the where the, where the, the uh, word comes from. Mongols even tried to push into Southeast Asia, and there's even tales of um, incursions as far as Indonesia. So the scale of the Mongol Empire is vast. It does begin to break up and contract to some extent to in the mid to late 13th century. But even when it breaks up, the individual parts are still very strong and they still at least see themselves as part of a larger whole. And then over time, the Mongol Empire, there's no crushing campaign that brings about the continent-wide destruction of the Mongol Empire. It, it breaks up the various parts, take on the culture of the local people that they've overthrown, local religions, they become sort of culturally different from each other. And in time, there are rebellions. They intermarry with local um, uh, key families and the Mongol Empire begins to sort of fade away, although there are some big moments of retrenchment, such as when um, the Emir Timur, or Tamburlaine, as he was known in, in Marlowe's play, um, another wave of Mongol invasions with particularly big ones into northern India, um, so he, he didn't expand as far as the earlier Mongol conquest, but you have waves of conquest after the first main one too. So it's it's a complex process.
1: So did they actually move in kind of much the same way as that, like the Romans, for example, where they would actually take over a place and stay there, like settle? Because the kind of image that a lot of us have in the West is that they just appeared on their horses, wrecked the place and kind of went onwards.
2: Yeah, the Mongols are, 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 were actually very sophisticated in how they brought about conquest. So, what they would do if they were conquering a region is they would, the first thing they'd do is to send emissaries to people they're going to attack. And you, you get a choice. Yeah, It's not a very good one. You can submit or you can die. <laughs> um. So, and over time, the numbers of people choosing to submit rather than the die option grew substantially as it became clear that the mongols simply weren't going to be stopped but when it came to the actual invasion what the mongols tended to like to do was they would stage a big and in- stage their big invasion with their full invasion army um, they'd focus on the big cities primarily but they'd have raiders that would go out and cause as much mayhem as possible and slow the slow the adv- arrival of reinforcements and deterring anyone who might want to send aid to whoever it is they're attacking But while they're doing that, now, of course, the Romans and Western European armies, and to some extent, many Islamic armies as well, and Byzantine armies, they depend on logistics. All those long lines of wagons um, following the army to make sure no one runs out of food or um, drink and all the other things they need. Mongols don't have that in quite the same way, because when the Mongols invade, the first thing their opponents will see will be their their, their armies, of course, but they tend to move their populations on mass. So, what you would see a few days behind the army is a complete a whole landscape full of wagons, literally thousands of wagons. And these aren't small wagons either; they're big wagons. Um, one commentator said that th- some of these wagons had axles the thickness of ships' masts, so they're substantial. Uh, machines. And these wagons bring the rest of the population, along with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of animals. And the Mongols are very Spartan. They're very hardy. They're used to surviving on very, very little. And their animals are used to foraging for their own, um, for their own sustenance. Now, of course, Western European knights or Byzantine heavy cavalry or, Mamluk cavalry, they have beautifully reared um, horses from stud farms that require a complex diet to keep them in fighting form, and so they need a lot of support. Mongols don't need that at all. They can just move in, and they've got everything they need with them. So logistics isn't a problem in anything like the same way. And they don't have to call for reinforcements because peop- much of their people could be coming with them, which means they're very, very hard to dislodge once they're there. And so they can conquer regions very quickly and it doesn't take long for the ruler or if the ruler, if the ruler hasn't worked it out for the individual regional elites to realise that submission makes a great deal of sense, ideally as quickly as possible.
1: But that sounds absolutely terrifying. Me and Matthew obviously write about like the Vikings. You think it's bad enough to think Viking marauders are going to come in and destroy your town, do what they do, and, but then they'll move on. Whereas Mongols are going to destroy your town, then they're actually going to come and live in it as well and just kind of destroy the place and eat everything. And by the time they move on, they'll have
2: even worse than the Vikings, they'll have wrecked everything for the sounds that of... There is a slight consolation, and that is that the Mongols don't want to rule over a wasteland. Right. So often their invasions can be incredibly brutal and there are enormous death tolls that, that many people... Um, mentioned describing the scale of the killings they bring about but the mongols like every other ruler in history are interested in every ruler's favorite three-letter word tax Mm. and you can't tax an empty landscape and so yes many people may have been killed but the mongols even when they're um besieging and trying to overthrow big cities they're very careful when they sack the city to make sure that highly skilled artisans are spared because they can see a value, a value in keeping them. Now, their families may not be, but they will be. And they may not be able to stay in that city. They may be transported half the way across the continent, but they will be spared because the Mongols see a value to them, because the Mongols want to have an economic infrastructure under their empire. That's something they're very keen on. So once the invasion phase has given way to the conquest phase, things get a little easier, but the taxes are very high. But just to pick up on your point about the Vikings, yeah, the Vikings um, overthrew large areas of the British Isles, parts of Western and Northern France, or at least invaded them, parts of Northern Germany, and of course areas in the, the Baltic region as well. I might equally talk about the Crusaders, who are often described as being, whatever else you think of them, very effective conquerors. But just how tiny those conquests are in terms of total territory taken. The Vikings took minute areas of the North Sea region and a few bits elsewhere. Crusaders, a slither of land down the East Mediterranean coast, whereas the Mongol Empire conquered the better part of Eurasia and held it. And so as an instrument of conquest, we should very much see the mongols as being not just better or more effective than anyone else but by an order of magnitude it's something that i truly try to bring out in the book um, that because agricultural civilizations would later go on to develop gunpowder weapons the musket ultimately the repeating rifle and then the machine gun and with that their railways and their big cities and their roads and their ultimately their nuclear weapons and all the rest of it ultimately because agricultural civilizations gained the upper hand in the sort of the long term of history they did that reasonably recently up until about the 15th 16th century it's nomadic civilizations that have bigger armies they're often richer and more effective mm. and that's not a narrative that often gets told yeah and so for for our period at least the agricultural civilizations, particularly places like anywhere south of the Stan, so into the Islamic world, or anywhere west uh, west of, I don't know, what today would be Eastern Europe, so Western Christendom, including parts of Eastern, Eastern Europe, um, and to some extent China, they're living in fear of these Mongol invasions because they can mobilize huge numbers of people who are trained from birth to fight, shoot, mm-hmm. and and ride. And they're very, very good at it, as opposed to agricultural societies where nine people out of 10 are farmers. So their ability to resist is limited.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. It's really interesting to me. I mean, I've just um, been writing a book set in 19th century America, and of course, thinking about the similarities between the the, the prairie Indian nations, the the North American, Native Americans, and um, how basically... If it hadn't been for the technology that the westerners had brought in i suppose it would have been very similar really that the um, and if the tribes had united um, the different tribes had united in a way that um, the, the mongols did in this having an incredibly hardy nomadic society that could basically strike at will anywhere and um for a long no, for, a, for a few decades they really had the upper hand over the the westerners coming in and taking over in america as well
2: yeah, in the medieval period, Western, Western Europe, it's not a particularly effective. Its its military hierarchies are not particularly effective at conquest. They can conquer each other from time to time. That kind of works. But they really struggle pushing out beyond their periphery until um, until much later. So one of the
0: things that struck me when I was reading your your book, I haven't read it in detail, but I've skim read, you know, read bits of it and I've been <laughs> dipping into it. Um, but I'll, I'll definitely keep it, keep it ready for if I decide to write a, a novel set in that period. <laughs> um, I was struck, though, by how many different peoples and empires that I've never even heard of. Um, were swept away by the Mongols. Um, and you, you you mentioned one of them already, which is the Khwarazmian Empire. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, this is a huge empire. You mentioned the Seljuk Turks, and I think I've heard of those before, you know, heard of the, those the, these peoples. But um, the fact that these civilizations have almost vanished from, at least from our Western history that I know of, really sort of shocked me to think that, you know, we've heard of the Mongols, but I'd never even heard of this Khwarazmian Empire. And um, so, what are some of the most surprising facts that you unearthed when you were writing the Mongol Storm?
2: Sure. Um, one of the things is in in my sort of in the broader sense of my interests, I, I'm interested in the period from roughly the 11th century through to the 14th, mm-hmm. and my focus is uh, Middle East, really, and. In the 11th century, there is another big invasion out of the Central Asian steppe region by the Seljuk Turks, very much like the Mongols, the Seljuks invaded following very, very similar routes. Often they're following the commercial routes from China into the Middle East, which are commonly today known as the Silk Roads, because, well, why wouldn't you follow um, a clearly laid out set of roads that will will serve your purposes where all the wealth is? very similar invasion path, very similar background, didn't conquer quite as much, but still a very substantial area. And for me, at least, it's it's looking at the Mongols, not just as a unique phenomenon, but as a reoccurring phenomenon, just this ongoing process of step invasion. You might similarly point to other step invasions into Western Christendom by people such as the Avars um, before this too, or, there's, there's various names I could give but um, it happens as a reoccurring phenomenon and then comparing the cultures because what was interesting is, is when I looked at some of the cultural practices the day-to-day things the beliefs the Mongols held when they first began their invasions well for my book at least into the Middle East I saw so much that I recognized from the Seljuk invasions and so it, it's drawing those interesting comparisons between the Mongols and other invasions of this era that's That's one of the things that struck me. Another thing which struck me after the book, actually, I've written about this a little bit because I I think it's something that I think people might find quite interesting. And I've mentioned this in a few contexts, but it goes something like this. And that is that lots of people tried to stop the Mongols. And in my book, I talk about 10, 12, perhaps. And most of them failed and the ones that did really badly their response went something like this they learn the mongols are coming they send ambassadors to find out who they are the mongols draw closer they summon their troops they build up their defenses they try and work out how they're going to resist the mongols then the mongols attack and almost immediately they're overthrown and destroyed and that's the end of them now what i find interesting <clears throat> excuse me what i find interesting about that is that you might say that their response is very proportionate. It's the kind of thing that would make sense to us. You don't fly off the handle, you don't respond too aggressively or too quickly, and neither do you capitulate. You do a phased response based on the level of threat that you feel, and then you get slaughtered. Mm -hmm. The people who survive, the societies that survive, there are two that manage the Mongol invasions reasonably well. The first is an Armenian kingdom called the Kingdom of Silesian Armenia, which is if you can visualize the East Mediterranean coast where it turns over to the southern Turkish coast. At that turn, there's a, a kingdom on the Silesian plains. And when they realize just how powerful the Mongols are, they submit. They submit before the Mongols are within X number of hundred miles of them because they can see what's coming. And they can also see the virtue of submitting before they're forced to do so. And the Mongols appreciate this too. So their tribute payments to the Mongols are very, very light. They don't have to put up with a Mongol garrison. And in many ways, life carries on for them as much as it ever had.
0: They just have to pay tax to the Mongols.
2: Yeah, but compared to states that have have to be forced into submission, their tribute's very light. Mongol Mongol tribute on areas where they've had to invade, much, much heavier. The other one is the Mamluk Mamluk Empire. And the Mamluk Empire also behaves in a different way. It doesn't wait to be attacked. As soon as it realizes the Mongols are anywhere near their empire, they put together their army, march out beyond their borders and seek battle with the Mongols. And in doing so, they long for the Mongols and beat them in battle. Now, what I find interesting is that they acted in ways that today we would see as disproportionate, inappropriate, they have reacted very, very strongly, even when the threat level is reasonably low, which wouldn't make sense according to modern day logic. And I think what we're seeing here, and I think the the thing that I take from it is that for many people, particularly those who have lived in very stable societies that have been stable for many decades, we're used to the idea that life can be taken at a measured pace. We make prudential decisions. We don't try and do things too quickly. We do things in a phased, sensible, structured and planned way, because that makes sense in time of peace. Mm -hmm. But in time of war, actually, that kind of decision making doesn't pay in anything like quite the same sort of way. When things are disordered, when you don't know what's happening next, actually much, much more disproportionate reactions seem to pay greater dividends. And that's an interesting thought. I think anyway
0: when I was reading the, the book and thinking about the you know the the way that history repeats itself when I mean, you mentioned now there were different invasions by different steppe peoples over the, the period and of course we get all these times in history where empires are built up and then they get overthrown by someone else that comes along and it made me think very acutely of course with what's going on at the moment in the world um, with you know things that are happening in the Middle East now in 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 Israel and Palestine and and of course the stuff that's going on with the Ukraine and and other things in, around the world as well and if we're in really a period now of the end of the Western civilization and will you know I wonder what will happen you know in the next fifty years hundred years where where we'll be whether there'll be historians in a thousand years' time looking back and saying, oh, yes, it's interesting to see the decline of the West and how they kept on trying to be proportionate and do these proportional steps to to stop whichever – I don't want to name too many. <laughs> I don't want to go too political, but, you know, um, and and whether you know, these things don't work and society will collapse as we know it.
2: The, the million-dollar question of what's going to happen next is one that's occupying a lot of people. Um Absolutely. I'm afraid I, I have the virtue of being a historian, so I can I can I can I can give the answer <laughs> that I look back more than I look forward. <laughs> yeah, but it if you look back, <laughs> if you look back, I mean,
0: history always repeats itself, doesn't it? So I guess that's why everyone's looking. It can be
2: quite sure which bits are going to repeat themselves. Hmm. The bad bits, anyway. Yeah, we had
1: uh, Angus Donald on the podcast. I don't know if you know Angus, who he is. He's no, he's another author. Uh, kind of writes similar stuff to us. But he's actually writing, I think he might even have written the book, uh, a novel about an Englishman who fought for the Mongols.
2: Uh, Oh, yeah.
1: So he's asking, this Englishman was captured by German knights outside Vienna and riding with a band of Mongol scouts, and he'd been fighting with them for 20 years or more. So Angus was wondering if you'd ever heard of him. You obviously have. and uh, Could you recommend any further reading for him? And Angus also says how much you liked your book. It was uh, very interesting and And well-written.
2: Angus has written a book about this Englishman himself. He hasn't released it yet. I think his is counting
0: it at the moment. I think he's trying to sell it now.
2: Yeah, but I think he has finished it, though. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a short article on the Englishman for the Smithsonian, actually. Um, It's available online. But, uh, yeah, so it's a good story. It's a strange story. So an English knight gets sent into exile from the Kingdom of England and by one road or another finds his way across the Mediterranean to the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. And at this point, the the main city of the Kingdom of Jerusalem is the port city of Acre, which is an incredible city. It's a huge metropolis, merchants from all the way across the Mediterranean, across Eurasia. Um, it's Apparently, it was absolutely foul because it's got no way of getting rid of all the, the sewage and rubbish it creates. The sea is slick with slime, but... There's so much going on within its walls and he finds his way there and uh, promptly loses every scrap of money he had left with him. And it sounds, if memory serves me, he literally lost the shirt from his back. So he wandered off east, not really having any clear idea where he was going. But he had one thing going in his favour, which is that he he could pick up languages really well. And so when he happened into the Mongol Empire and they realized what facility he'd got, suddenly he's actually very interesting. And so having been in the Middle East for many years, and then who knows where he went within the Mongol Empire? He turns up. X number of years later, as you say, as part of the Mongol invasion of Hungary and Poland, as one of the ambassadors representing the Mongol Empire to Western Christendom, and it makes sense they'd pick him as an ambassador because he can speak the languages it's still pretty odd that he would perform that role against the civilization from which he has come himself but uh yeah no it's an incredible st- it's an incredible story very little is known for certain about him but definitely the good ba- a good basis for a story because yeah. what a life he yeah had, whatever, whatever whatever it involved
0: yeah, I think that's yeah, that's what Angus has, has clutched, you know, found, and it seems like a perfect story to tell. So hopefully, uh, that will come out sometime in the next year or so. We'll I'll be able to read it.
1: it. Yeah, there's not much about the Mongols in historical fiction, so that's maybe a wee market for somebody there
2: to tap into. One of the things that surprised me about actually about them, I, I knew that there was an audience um, yeah. for the Mongols. What surprised me though is just how big that audience is. There's a lot of interest out there. Uh, I'm used to writing books about the Crusades and books that the Crusades tend to sell. Actually, look on the Mongols. It's Mongols plus Crusades and others, of course, but it's still cent- centrally on the Mongols. You know that the interest levels, I would say, have been higher. It's right. it's, it's interesting to see how much curiosity it, it, there are, is out there about them. Yeah, well, that, that,
0: that, that will be that will be music to Angus's ears anyway if he's <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> podcast.
1: Well I had a look at your book earlier Nick on just Amazon and the charts and I was expecting it to be way down the charts because it's non-fiction and as you say it like the Mongols how much interest is there? It was actually really really high up the charts on Amazon which I must admit did surprise me but as you say there's obviously interest there for it.
2: Yeah on Amazon when I've checked it sort of comes and goes a bit it's it's occasionally it's uh, it's it's it can it can be a bestseller, but normally it, yeah, it's, it's selling it's it's selling all right. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I've had a lot of requests for talks and people and other pod, other podcasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of curiosity out, out there about them, and I think there's an underlying sense that the sort of the Hollywood depiction or there's a popular media depiction of them as just this sort of wild band of warriors is very very much far from the mark and it is it's a it's a much more complicated story yeah
0: have you have you read the conigledon books about the mongol um genghis khan and the whole sort of mongol empire
2: i have to confess i haven't but perhaps like perhaps i can't one, one comment i can offer on historical fiction is that one of the things i've liked about the historical fiction books i've read and I'm, I'm aware you're probably going to ask me for an example, and one's not actually coming to mind, but I've read several that would fit this bill. And that's um, fiction books, or indeed even things like Netflix series, yeah. where the narrative shifts from one person's perspective to another, and then to mm-hmm. another, and the, the plot progresses through multiple people's and groups' eyes. And And I, I saw something in that that I thought, you know what, I think that would work very well in nonfiction and Dare I say it, I think right. it, it has. So, um, so yeah, I, this is one of the many areas in which I think that different forms of media, different types of writer can learn from each other because there's a great deal to be learned. Mm-hmm. And what my instinct is that actually the, the spheres of historical fiction and professional his, history writing, they're actually beginning to converge into more of a sort of Venn diagram in some mm-hmm. respects because... There seems to be a lot of interest among historical fiction writers to make sure they've got things right. Not just the not just what type of sword were they wielding, or what type of clothes were they wearing, but the mentalities, the food, yes, absolutely, the yep. deeper things than just the, just the things, the outer trappings, the beliefs, and to try and get that really, really right. And in the same vein, I think that history writers are realizing that the days when. I, even when I was doing my PhD, this was going out as an idea, but there was almost a sort of, um, well, I hope you're not using adjectives in your book because that would be most improper. <laughs> um, there's a sense that history writing it has to have a very professional flavor to it. It yeah. has to be really quite dry um, because that's the expectation. That's the professional benchmark actually. And even, even then things are moving from quite, quite swiftly away from there but i think now whilst historians don't want to lose so much as a shred of historical accuracy there's no reason at all why they shouldn't present it in a more exciting and engaging form there's nothing there's no loss of historical credentials in that at all and my objective in writing mongol storm was always um, (laughs) i'll leave it to my readers to decide whether i've achieved this but to try and write something with the authority of cutting edge research but with the readability or at least approaching that of historical fiction
1: it sounds to me like you probably should try writing historical fiction since you've done all the <laughs> research anyway so why not yeah well just oh, on that finishing
0: idea. off that that note i mean you should you should definitely give the um Eagledon books a, a try the first one particularly is brilliant Uh, which is like the rise of Temujin becomes Chinggis Khan. And it's really, really good. Um, And uh, in my opinion, the books kind of get less good after the first two or three in the series. I think it's about five. But the first, those first couple are are brilliant, really great. And um, he's a really good writer.
2: Sure. I I read historical fiction from time to time. But I mean one of the, the, the trilogy that has always stuck out in my mind is just being incredible is uh, the Bernard Cornwall Winter King trilogy. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Did you? So everybody always so says that. Obvious. Everybody I mean, always, always it says it. <laughs> is that because everyone says it? Yeah, everybody says it, like it, well, it, including it's, us. It's, yeah. like our favourite as well. Yeah. It was
0: it was what inspired us to start writing for yeah. you know, a large part okay. as well. So.
2: But not just Bernard Cornwall in general, specifically that trilogy. Yeah, those, those Oh yeah, three yeah, three absolutely. books. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. those
0: three books, The Winter King and um, Excalibur and the, the, whatever the Enemy books God! yeah. Enemy of God and Excalibur. Yeah, the, 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 everybody's always, pretty much, yeah, that, just everyone really we asked, yeah. their favourite books. And they're Bernard Cornwall's favourite books of his own as well.
2: Are they now? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's, I, he's I, I really that. enjoyed his Saxon books, and I enjoyed mm-hmm. his... Um, uh, the, the, the Sharp. The, sharp, and, sharp yeah. sort of his yeah. and I quite enjoyed his modern fiction too, actually, which I yeah. think is well yeah. known. But um, yeah, no, as a, as a historian, just thinking, wow, mm-hmm. this really is raising the bar. I wasn't at that point, I wasn't quite sure which bar was being raised, whether historical or fiction or something else, but a bar was being very dramatically lifted somewhere. Great
1: stories, yeah. It's... Yeah. Uh,
2: I'm
1: yeah. just conscious of the time here. I don't want to keep you too no, late, sure. but I've got this question that I really wanted to ask you. It interests me. Um, so, you're also something of an authority in medieval technology. So, that sounds interesting, but what does it mean exactly? What kind of technology are we talking about?
2: Sure. Well, it, it's a topic that interests me, certainly. Um, and technology, it's a bit of a modern word, but of course, there's no other word that really conveys that sense. I'm interested in, in where inventions came from, where new ideas came from. I'm interested in the sharing of different ways of doing things. I'm from a, 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 a seafaring family myself, so I'm always interested in things like where the maritime chart came from, and it came from the 13th century. It seems to have been a product of the intensification of maritime trade um, between Byzantium, the Muslim world and Western Christendom during the era that the book's about. I'm interested in the arrival of the maritime compass, which is from China originally, um, and then all sorts of more specific details like the configuration of galleys and keels and things but I'm also interested in science and intellectual ideas. And one of the things that interested me about the Mongols is that they're interested in science too. And so in the Middle East, uh, one of the most powerful Mongol leaders uh, in the 1250s and 1260s is called Hulagu. And Hulagu is very interested in intellectual life. And so he creates a research institution at a place called Maragha. And what he does is when his armies go conquering places, they have been tasked with rounding up as many intellectuals and thinkers as they can. And then they're all parceled into Moraga. And so you have this incredible assortment of Christian and Muslim and Chinese um, scientists and philosophers, and they're just put in this place and they're told, right, what you've got to do is work out how to increase the prosperity of the Mongol empire, the victory of the Mongol people and the lifespan of the Mongol imperial family go. And so off they go. And of course, many of these things aren't achievable. But nonetheless, through the sharing of ideas, there's some significant scientific advances that are made, including in spherical trigonometry, for example, which still impact science today. And so the Mongols do have a science legacy, not necessarily the one they expected, but they do have one. Um, and. and It's also the way they try things out. So when the Mongols invade China, they encounter paper money. I think, well, this is a good idea because what we can do is take away all the gold from a civilization and keep it for ourselves and replace it with paper money and say, well, there you go. Spend it as if it was gold and it'll work brilliantly. And they try and use this um, in Tabriz, uh, a big city in the Caucasus. And they say, okay, from now on, uh, all trade has to be in paper money much like it is in China. The shopkeepers won't have it. It's like batten down the hatches, right? That's it. No more business today because they won't accept paper money. But it's interesting to see different ideas and approaches and technologies being tried in different places um, because the Mongols want to see if these things work. And in the same vein, you actually have quite a lot of thinkers in other parts of the world trying to think about ways that they can defeat the Mongols or prop up the Crusader States or something like that. I mean, one one area which is quite interesting is there's a lot of research going on in Western Christendom in these years into lenses and how lenses Mm -hmm. work. And so one writer actually says, what we need to do is to get a massive lens and mount it on the ramparts of Crusader castles so that we can channel sunlight through the lens, concentrate it into what is basically a laser. laser, In the 13th century. Totally doesn't work, but <laughs> they're thinking about it, and that in itself is very interesting. Yeah, yeah it's, it's my daughter leaving her glasses, her
1: spectacles on the the window ledge, and I'm saying, "Don't leave them there; they'll start a fire." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, they do; they, they they can do. Yeah. Um. So, well, we're coming to, to towards the end of the of our time together. Oh yeah. Um. And um, it's been incredibly interesting, and um, I think we could ask you lots more.
1: Yeah, questions. we've got a lot more questions, yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, maybe maybe when you, you – well, one question we could ask you, are you working on another book at the moment? Have you got something
2: else lined up? Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed writing The Mongol Storm, and I think, I think people enjoyed reading it too. So I, I'm probably not going to stop there. Uh, the next book's going to be a similar kind of thing a multi-perspective history, uh, history of an era in the Middle East. I'm thinking I might go for the century preceding the Mongol storm, so this would be the era of the Crusader invasions, but again, not just from the Crusader's perspective or Saladin's perspective or uh, the Byzantine's perspective or anyone else's perspective, but trying to sort of bring in a little bit of everyone's perspective to show how the various different things that are going on in that era affect the course of events and one of the big points to make is that whilst everyone's heard of the Crusades there's actually a lot of other things going on in the Middle East too that are really interesting mm. but which don't get talked about that much so it's showing how that mix all comes together really.
0: Yeah well, that sounds brilliant that sounds great so maybe yeah. when you've when you've done that and that's been published we'll get you on and talking, <laughs> talking about that book. Anytime. So at the end of every um, interview, we always ask our guests a couple of questions. And the first one is I always ask, and um, it's what have you been reading and what have you been watching
2: recently? Um, Okay, so what have I been reading? (laughs) I'm afraid reading-wise I'm pretty boring because I just read academic books, really. So
1: do we, pretty much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's – but, I mean – I say boring, they're not boring for me at all. I, I think they're fascinating. But there is a really good book um, that I've read, which I don't agree with it it's in its entirety, but it gave me a lot to think about. And that is a new economic history of the Mediterranean called <laughs> The Donkey and the Boat by Chris Wickham. And it's incredible. It's It's Chris really Wickham. thought-provoking.
0: That's funny. I'm actually at the very at this moment. I'm reading a book by Chris Wick, Wickham, yeah. uh, medieval Rome. So, so he, yeah,
2: he's, he's written some incredible stuff. Um, his book, The Inheritance of Rome, was a text. Yeah, got that as well. My, okay, was a textbook on my modules for a very long time. So that that was a really good read. What am I watching? Well, like most people, I like to relax in the evening and, and watch something, but. I don't tend to watch historical dramas largely mm-hmm. because I get annoyed. Um, one notable exception to that guess. is the last kingdom <laughs> series, which it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Yeah. I like that. Um, That's what because think, you
0: didn't write about that specific period.
2: Well, possibly I, I know a bit about <laughs> it, but I mean, with some, with, some, with most historical, um, historical dramas, you don't have to be an expert in it to, to be able to, to hold your head in your hands and go, oh my <laughs> gosh, no. Yeah. Um, but in terms of watching, I tend to watch a lot of sci-fi. And the reason is that the thing I like about sci-fi is good sci-fi, at least, the stuff that holds you. It's full of ideas. People people trying to reimagine what the human condition, what the human environment, what the human experience might look like in radically different contexts. And in many ways, that for me is a key underpinning question, because people can't assume that in past cultures, people thought, behaved, had the same reflexes as they have now. Those can be very, very different, very different, and different between cultures, even in the same period. And so for me, at least, trying to get out of my own headspace, out of the things that I consider to be normal, and trying to understand what the world might look like from someone with a radically different worldview, experience, conditions, is incredibly helpful. And actually, I often find it sci-fi, um, sci-fi stuff that does. That. I mean, some sci-fi's, you know, late the stuff that isn't particularly thought through, just sort of laser guns and and, and spaceships. Not like that Star thought. Wars. Oh, I like Star Wars. <laughs> so there's
1: Matthew. I was waiting for his reaction. <laughs>
2: I'm
0: not going to say anything. So <laughs> what, what would you recommend? What sci-fi would you recommend then? That's thought-provoking. That you've been watching I recently, that Dune, you've watched recently. I'd
2: imagine Dune. You'd probably like that. I do like Dune. Um, there is some, there are some interesting concepts there. Um, I find the I find some of the conceptual underpinning of the Hunger Games trilogy to be and the prequel now very very. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of thinking that's gone into those books. They're dark, but there's a lot of thinking thinking there. I, I find that well, that's
0: back to the end of civilization and the end of in the Roman um, Empire, and it's very yeah. much
2: and, and so and sometimes I mean. I, dystopian stuff is often a bit dark for my tastes but nonetheless there's quite a lot of thinking that often goes into them and that that can be very interesting i'm a bit of a trekkie largely but not not the sort of the uh the geeky side of the uniforms <laughs> and all the rest of it but just because of the level of thinking again that goes into it and the concepts they explore for me as a teenager that was something that i really sort of uh dined out on i went through all the star treks there because i liked the way they explored issues and that's what i'm, I'm interested in really
1: yeah right okay last <laughs> two-part question what have you okay. been listening to and do you listen to music when you're writing
2: uh i don't i don't tend to listen to much actually i don't tend to listen to, I, I enjoy music but aside from sort of putting it on in the car i don't uh, i don't listen to it as a sort of an earnest thing what I do is it's not quite answering your question is I love to listen to people. i love to, li- love to listen to conversations. Um, again, it's, it's all, it's, it comes down to an underlying interest in people and how they operate. I love to hear about people's life stories. I like to hear about what their experience and look like, how they've shaped them, what they make of the world and why, particularly if they're different to me and particularly if they disagree with me. I, I really enjoy talking to people who I profoundly disagree with, because I don't. I, if if I wanted just to be reassured of my own opinion, I'd talk to people like me. But I, yeah. I see no value in that. I like to talk to people who don't agree with me, particularly who can cheerfully disagree with me, so it doesn't become a tedious argument. But we can just exchange ideas. That mm-hmm. that for me is that's that's precious. That's important, and that's so why I, see- I really enjoy listening to.
0: So you must love um, Twitter then. I mean it must be perfect just to where everybody disagrees with everybody in a horribly <laughs> angry way. So yeah
2: I, I mean I'm on Twitter, but um, just endlessly hurling abuse at peoples not really my, my thing, but uh, I try and stay out of the, uh, of those sorts of uh, things. It's a, a polite a polite but diverging exchange of, of, of views for me would be that's, that's the perfect the perfect area. So,
1: when you say you listen to conversations, I assume you don't mean eavesdropping people. Oh, no, no. (laughs) That was a joke. That was a joke.
2: (laughs) (laughs) um, I was going to say it's a podcast or something you're you're meaning. (laughs) One of the privileges of being an academic, though, is you do get to travel. You do get to go to all sorts of different wonderful places, and that meet. would have been one of our questions if we had more time. Yeah. So yeah, so it, it's not it's that kind of context where you're just having a chance to meet people and and to chat with them, really. Yeah. Right. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't I sure whether I should say that
1: because I was I didn't know how you would take it, but I thought <laughs> like it's, it's too good an opportunity to pass up.
0: I can imagine Nick now going around you know, university with his sort of glass on the door, <laughs> yeah, listening yeah. to people's conversations to so the other oh, side of the, the door.
1: the other now. side of the bookcase. and <laughs> <laughs> the library.
0: Anyway, well, it's been a pleasure to have having you on. Likewise. And um, thank you for sending me the book, which um, I have here, The Mongol Storm. And it's very well written and exciting, um, as you say, and quite um, eye-opening. Yeah, someone who I had read the the books by Con Eagledon, so very much from the perspective of the the mongols but it was really interesting to see the perspective of all these different um people so thanks very much and good luck for your um for your next work and um yeah we'll get you on again sometime in the future
2: look forward to it thanks so much thanks very, thanks much, very much cheers that's
0: it for today's episode We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please take a moment to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on and don't forget to subscribe.
1: Let us know if you have any questions or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Podcast, and x at rock underscore swords. You can find out more about our books on matthewharfey.com and
0: stephenamackay.com. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by us. Until next time, a rock, paper, sword is goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. And it's goodbye from me, Stephen A. McKay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind. Stay safe. And happy reading. Da da da